We are going to be in Luke's gospel this morning, um, continuing on. It's always a big uh, moment of celebration when uh, we cross the threshold of yet another chapter. Uh, those of you that have been with us know it's been years um, in Luke's gospel, but hopefully you have found it to be rich and a blessing to you. We are now in Luke chapter 22, um, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 13 here. We'll pray, and then we will uh, uh, dive in. So Luke 22, beginning in verse 1, it says this, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he'll show you a large upper room, furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Would you pray with me? God, right now, I think, in view of what I'm going to be sharing this morning, um, my great prayer is that you would just rip the veil off um, of reality, I guess. Rip the veil that often shrouds our eyes from seeing what's really going on. Help us, Lord, to catch a glimpse into uh, the spiritual dimension of things, um, the spiritual conflict uh, that's going on, the warfare all around us. God, I pray that we would see um, in this text and through our time together um, not just uh, the reality of an enemy, the powers of darkness, but also and especially um, the, the triumphant victory of our Savior. Those are the things I'm, I'm, I'm asking God you to do. I'm praying that you'd encourage my brothers and sisters that are maybe feeling down right now. I'm praying that you'd meet them right where they are. God, I'm praying that those that are wandering and, and maybe making deals with the devil, so to speak, God, would be convicted, challenged, and set free. Lord, I'm praying you'd do above and beyond what I could even think to ask or imagine right now. God, do it for your glory and do it for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here's uh, what I want to do, and it may uh, come off uh, a little bit surprising at first. Uh, I actually want to preach a sermon this morning um, really about Satan. 
uh, about the ways that he kind of meddles with uh, the hearts of men and, and, and co-ops us for his own purposes and schemes. Um, and I know uh, that some of you out there are probably thinking, well, goodness, Nick, I was kind of hoping for something a little bit more uh, cheery. Uh, this is, you know, December 13th, after all. We've got a lot going on in the world. It's Advent season. It's Christmas time. I mean, I wanted something that would kind of be a nice little uh, pick-me-up, and I understand that. I, I really do, but here's the thing. Um, truthfully, it could be argued that there really is no topic more fit for Christmas time than this one concerning Satan, the powers of darkness, and how God is uh, coming at those. Because when John is uh, asked the question, why Bethlehem? Why the incarnation? Why Christmas? Uh, why the coming of Christ? He answers this way in 1 John 3.8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So why Christmas? To destroy Satan. I mean, that's the north star, if you will, of our Savior's mission. That's what's guiding him. That's why he's come. That's why there's a baby in Bethlehem. The author of Hebrews is in full agreement on this point as well. Hebrews 2.14 Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Why did he take on flesh and blood? Why Christmas? To destroy the devil. Same exact concept same exact mission even our modern carols are up to speed on this um you may know the one god rest you merry gentlemen god rest you merry gentlemen let nothing you dismay for jesus christ our savior was born upon this day why to save us all from satan's power when we were gone astray O oh, tidings of comfort and joy to save us all from satan's power that's why he's come. That's why Christmas uh, happened at all. That's what this season is about. So it, it may seem like I'm out of touch with the, the feels of the holiday, but truthfully, I mean, this is the point. It's not ultimately about the, uh, the hot chocolate and the cookies and the gifts and the shopping and, and, and the, the warm fuzzies, though I like all of that. And the Christmas, I mean, we do all that stuff. But this right here is the point. There would be none of that if this didn't happen. The Son of Man appeared to destroy the works of the devil. So I'm going to be preaching um, two sermons on these verses before us this week and next, and then we'll kind of step aside for that Christmas week and do something, I think I'll call it um, a, thrill of, a thrill of hope, and we'll talk about hope and how Christmas relates to that, but that's coming later. These next two weeks, we're going to be dealing with the text in front of us, and we're going to make our way, um, as we kind of move through these two sermons, we're going to make our way through three headings, and um, here they are, the 
power of hell, number one, the powers of hell. Number two, the schemes of man. And then number three, the sovereign grace of God. This morning, we're going to spend most all of our attention on the first two. Next week, we're going to get to that third one, the sovereign grace of God. So um, that kind of sets you up for where we're going. Let's begin then with this idea of the powers of hell. Um, The first thing that I think we need to draw out from this text is the simple fact that what is about to go down in the hours that follow, whether we're talking about the betrayal, we're talking about the trial, we're talking about the crucifixion, all of these things, while on the surface, it seems like Jesus is just getting all ruffled up and in the mix with a bunch of human beings, right? You've got the Jews, the Gentiles, you've got uh, these chief priests and these scribes, and you've got Judas and, and Peter, you know, denying him, and then you've got Pontius Pilate and Herod and others. It seems like Jesus is ruffling feathers and he's getting all up in a tussle with human beings. But what we have to see is that underneath all of that, behind all of that, there's there's an even deeper, more fundamental conflict, not between Jesus and man, but between God and Satan. Between Jesus and the devil. So we read in verse 3 there, Luke 22, then Satan entered into Judas. And this really is the verse that I'm just going to be riffing on for this entire message. Satan entered into Judas. And the essence of what we kind of can bring out there is simply this. Before the betrayal of Judas, we see this entrance of Satan. He's behind it. He's on the move here. That's the fundamental issue. Um, I you know, went on like a, a hiking trip with my dad uh, years ago now. Uh, we went in and around Kings Canyon. And um, I don't remember the time exactly that we went. I think it was the beginning of summer. And whatever season it was, it was rattlesnake season, okay? Uh, we, I mean, I almost, we were seeing them on the trail. I almost jumped on a little baby rattler when I was bouldering. I was coming, I was about to come down and I see this little guy coiled up looking at me. I got this picture just to remind myself, baby rattlers, I guess, are even more dangerous than the big boys because they don't know how to hold back their venom. Uh, so I was, you know, it was kind of freaky and we were seeing them on the trail and around and we also, I mean, where we didn't see them physically, we saw evidence of them there. Their, their tracks, their, their, their kind of coiled kind of tracks and stuff woven into the dust of the trail there. And I guess the reason why I share that is because that's the sort of thing I see and I want us to see in these last hours, these last uh, day or two of Jesus' life. In this narrative, as we follow Luke's gospel now to the close, what we're going to see and what we should make note of is that there are are snake tracks everywhere. That Satan is in and and he's woven into all the details here. He's behind it. He's on the move in this. We're likely going to get all caught up in what Judas and the chief priests and Peter and Pontius Pilate, these guys do But we can't miss the fact that in and behind it all lurks a darker, more sinister spiritual power. Now, um, this conflict between God and the devil is one that really kind of spans back uh, to the very beginning of the story. 
in fact, we could say, it seems from Scripture, it spans all the way back even before the beginning of, of creation, even back before what we even know of as time and the world and all these things. And what I want to do for us then, at least just for a brief moment, is recall this ancient tension, tease it out from the biblical storyline so that we can kind of catch the full uh, significance of all that's taking place here. Let me do that with you momentarily. Um, It's a little quick little Bible study, Bible lesson here, and then we'll, we'll get into some more practicals with how this will relate to you and me as we move towards that second heading. But let me do this here. Genesis 1, the Spirit of the Lord is hovering over the face of the deep, right? There is uh, darkness, and there is chaos, and God, uh, He speaks, and, and with His Word, He brings into the darkness light, and He brings into the chaos order. He forms, and He fills, and then He sets over his creation, man, those made in his image. He puts them over it all to rule and reign under and with him in all the earth. It was all, he says, very good until it wasn't. Genesis 3, suddenly we're made aware of another being. And this is why I say it would seem from the scriptures that we're not fully told exactly what happened before creation uh, as we know it. Um, this being already existed. This rebel creature was already there. And he enters the scene in Genesis 3. In the narrative, we're just told it's a serpent. All we know is it's some sort of evil power with some axe to grind. But as the Bible narrative unfolds, uh, later authors will look back on that serpent and say, listen, that was Satan animating this creature, uh, coming in to to essentially try to draw or bring uh, humanity and creation back into a place of darkness and disorder. And so that's what he's doing here he seems bent on dragging things back into chaos and so he begins at the top of the food chain really with men and women with those created in God's image with those uh, most especially on God's heart and he gets them to doubt he gets them to question he gets them ultimately to turn and rebel to take the prerogatives of God on themselves to call good evil and evil good It gets them to fall. So God comes to curse. Yes, he curses the man. Yes, he curses the woman for their sin. But he also, and he especially, and he first curses the serpent. And this is where we come to Genesis 3.15. And what we see is that Tucked within this curse of the serpent is actually a promise for all mankind. Here's what he says. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He's talking to the serpent there and he's saying, listen, there's going to come a seed, an offspring from the woman. Uh, We know now years down the road. And this one is going to bruise your head, uh, though you will strike and bruise his heel. It's what biblical scholars call the proto-evangelion, 
Or in other words, the first gospel, the beginnings of the gospel, here tucked within the the curse of the serpent is a promise of hope for all mankind of this one who would come. And though he would be wounded in the heel, he would deliver a death blow to the head of Satan, of this evil power. Wounded in the process, but triumphant in the end. I wonder if that sounds familiar. So the years roll on. The conflict continues between God and Satan. God's men, uh, even the best of them, are tempted and fall, just like their forefather Adam. Uh, From Abraham to Moses to David to Solomon. They've got some things that God's moving on in them and they're doing some good stuff, but they all also fall victim to temptation. They all also make radical mistakes as the devil tempts and twists. But then at the turn of the ages, this promised seed of the woman comes. Here's where we've got Christmas. Here's where we've got Bethlehem, a baby in a manger, the hope of all mankind. He's relatively quiet until about 30 years of age, we're told, the year uh, when a Levitical you know, priest or a, a Levite would, would take up his ministry and his service in and around the temple. Jesus is 30 years old, and he makes his kind of public appearance there at the Jordan River when he's baptized by John, and what happens? The Holy Spirit falls on him and immediately thrusts him out into the wilderness where what? What's going to happen? where he will be tempted by the devil. In other words, the combat has begun. Tested, tempted by the devil three times there in various sorts of ways. The same sorts of ways Adam and Eve were tempted back in the garden. Yet three times Jesus holds his ground. The devil staggers back from the blow. But he resolves to pick back up the issue later. Not going to go down easy. So we're told Luke 4.13, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And then in Luke 22.3, it seems to me that opportune time has come. Then Satan entered into Judas. This is why Jesus down in verse 53 of Luke 22 would say this. This is your hour and the power of darkness. It's coming to a head in these moments. It's, it's, it's mortal combat. It's Genesis 3.15 colliding in the pages of Scripture now. What we are about to witness is, is, is it's, it's now time for heel bruising and head crushing. It's time for sin bearing and curse removing. That's what's going on here. The powers of hell are being unleashed upon the Son of God in these moments. Snake tracks everywhere. I think it's in that 
the Passion movie by Mel Gibson. I think I recall this. We're in the Garden of Gethsemane. I, lo- I love uh, this imagery because I think that's what's going on. It's Jesus is praying and he's sweating drops of blood. Uh, in, in the movie, at least, he pictures Jesus as stomping on the head of a serpent that's coiled up around him or trying to, at least, there in the garden. That's it. I mean, this is full-on uh, mortal combat going on in these moments. God versus the powers of hell and Satan. Now, let's move to the second heading then, the schemes of man. And this is really where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. Um, seeing that all of this kind of stands in the background um, of what we are about to read and and. and, and um, and, and watch and happen throughout uh, these latter chapters of Luke, uh, we are better prepared to ask now, I think, okay, so how does Satan get men to participate in his plot of rebellion? Because yes, Nick, I'm following with you. It seems Satan is kind of behind this or Satan is on the move in this. But bottom line is it's human beings that feature the largest in the narrative. I mean, it's all these people that are crying for him to be crucified. and It's all these people that are betraying him for a few pieces of silver and denying him to a servant girl and all this stuff. Yes, we get these little notes here or there about Satan, but man, it sure seems like this is, you know, this is all men on the surface. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, okay, how is it that, that, that Satan gets men to do his dirty work, as it were? How is it that he baits us into this, to hitching our wagon to his purposes, his causes, so we're doing stuff he's behind, but it's us? How does it happen? Now, um, when we see this idea of Satan entering Judas, there are really three things that I want to consider in particular with you um, to try to help us get a sense of how this sort of thing works. Uh, First, I want to make note of the fact that he enters, okay? Secondly, we're going to look at how he enters, and then third, why he enters. And we'll start to catch uh, how this sort of thing works, how men get caught up in this, um, co-opted for Satan's evil designs. And after we've done this, uh, we'll just kind of drop out with a, a, a reflection on Christmas and how Christmas is ultimately the combat of the devil and all these things. So first, that he enters, that he enters. Um, what I want to bring out here real quickly is, is simply the fact that Satan enters Judas. And what I mean by this is we need to take uh, spiritual reality Uh, spiritual forces, powers of darkness, seriously. I want to talk about this personally now and make sure that, yes, okay, we see it's a part of the biblical narrative. But man, do we catch that this is actually important, that Satan is on the move, not just in the pages of Scripture, but in our lives. And he is doing some of this even still today. Jesus would have us take him seriously. Um, I was thinking of, you know, as far as secular modern people are concerned, uh, there really has been a move away from uh, belief in spiritual things. We are um, enlightened people. We are, uh, you know, we believe, if we believe in anything, we believe in our science, right? 
material. If I can't see it, it isn't real. If I can't put it in a test tube, why are you even believing in that? It, it seems like uh, those who believe in you know, things like the devil and whatnot, seems like, like kids who still believe in monsters or the boogeyman. Uh, Christians are kind of like those, those, those little babies who still need to sleep with a nightlight because they're scared of the dark. They've lost touch with reality. Um, and even though this can be the modern sentiment about things like Satan and demons and spiritual powers and supernaturalism and other things, uh, what we find, interestingly enough, is that uh, most people still do really appreciate Jesus' ethics. They appreciate his moral teaching. Uh, they'll call him a good teacher, a, a moral guide. They'll, they'll grab things like the Sermon on the Mount or the Golden Rule or other stuff and they say, man, isn't that wise? Isn't that good? Uh, but here's the thing. Uh, you cannot divide Jesus up uh, like this. You can't take part of his teaching to the neglect of the other. He either uh, must, we either must take what he says about both morality and spiritual realities or we need to count him as a raving lunatic because he can't be much of a moral guide if he really does believe in these weird little oogity-boogity things that aren't real at all. So we've got to wrestle with this. Because Jesus goes straight from talking uh, about ethics and morality with incredible acuity and insight <laughs> straight to discussions about getting behind me, Satan, and I saw Satan falling from heaven and all of these other things. He sees, in other words, spiritual reality, supernatural reality. And all of that is woven into his ethic and his moral teaching. And so we must confront the fact that either Jesus is crazy and we should throw away everything he has to say to us or he's insightful and wise and we should take not just his words on ethics but his words on spiritual evil as well. But you can't have it both ways. Now, as far as the church is concerned, um, it seems we're prone to one of two extremes when it comes to this idea that Satan is, is on the move. Um, there are some on the one side who are going to think, eh, kind of make too little of it, maybe have gone the way of the culture, the way of the secular kind of mindset, and kind of think, no, uh, this can't be real. We may say we believe it when we read our Bible studies, but we kind of blush when we're talking about it with anybody else. It just seems kind of embarrassing, seems a little bit out there, we know, so uh, hush, hush, we'll keep it quiet. So some of us make too little of these spiritual powers of darkness, but then on the other side, there are those of us, and maybe some of you have come from some of those traditions where you just make too much of those powers. Like there's a demon behind you know, every you know, uh, bush and around every corner, and everything is spiritually understood to where the demon made me do it or these sorts of things. And we over-dramatize, we over-emphasize the powers of evil. We give them too much credit, you could say. The goal, I think, for us is to thread the needle in the way that Paul does um, in Ephesians 6, kind of cutting between both those extremes. Because in Ephesians 6, uh, against the secularist, 
uh, who just says, nah, not a big deal, uh, who just kind of wants to see the material world and this stuff as kind of what's the real stuff. Uh, against the secularist, he speaks uh, outrightly, um, verse 12, Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So this is huge. He says, man, you're thinking it's flesh and blood you're fighting with. But I'm telling you, there are snake tracks everywhere. I'm telling you, there are spiritual powers on the move. They are the fundamental, the ultimate enemy. And this is critical for us to get, I think, into our minds and our hearts. This day and age in particular, when we are, right now, I think, you know, we are so prone. We just want somebody to blame <laughs> for the stuff that's not going right in our lives, Right? So we want to blame the government or we want to blame our boss or we want to blame our spouse or we want to blame, God forbid, our pastor or whatever. Just want somebody, some flesh and blood to point at and say, you're the reason, right? But what Paul is saying here is we can't forget there's an unseen enemy that lurks in the shadows. And I just wanted you to recall recall this or at least notice this from the story with with Jesus and Judas I don't think Jesus looks at Judas as his enemy in fact when Judas comes to betray him with a kiss what does he call him in Matthew's gospel Matthew 26 50 he says he calls him friend he says friend do what you've come to do what have you come to do betray me friend come near you see, I don't think Jesus sees Judas as his ultimate enemy. He understands there are powers of darkness behind even this. He understands the spiritual that's behind the physical, the powers of hell behind the schemes of man. And this is critical for us to get as well. So we stop attacking our fellow image bearers as if they're the problem ultimately. Instead, we can have compassion where they're ensnared by the devil and we can together combat our true enemy and these spiritual powers of darkness. So Paul comes against the secularist extreme in that way. But then we also see, as you keep reading in Ephesians 6, he comes against those who would over-dramatize the spiritual as well and give them too much credit. Because he says, listen, yes, they're powerful. Yes, they're real. Yes, there's something to be reckoned with. But no, they're not ultimate in terms of power and authority. God is. Christ is. Put on the armor of God. Stand firm in the Lord. You can overcome. You will overcome. So yes, they're real and they should be taken seriously. No, you don't need to be given over to fear and act like they are controlling you and doing all of these things. They're not. You have the authority in Christ. Satan is still on the move. No, we need not fear. We best take it to heart. That's all I wanted to bring out with that first piece, that he enters. But now I want to look at how he enters. How he enters. I've got three little observations for us here. First, he enters with permission. He enters with permission. 
Um, I want to make it plain that I don't think Satan can just barge into, uh, in through the door of your heart, so to speak. Uh, yes, he can oppress. Yes, he can afflict. Yes, he can certainly attempt uh, you. Uh, but I don't think he can just kind of enter into a person, as we see here with Judas, without some sense of permission. Um, Satan can knock on the door, as it were. He can hold out some candy, some some you know uh, gold-plated treasure. Uh, up to the peephole of the, on the door of your heart. He can knock and say, come on, look at this. But you've got to open the door. You've got to open the door. Now, why do I say this? Why is this the conclusion that I come to? Well, it's actually quite simple. It's because in every instance of sin I see in the Bible, um, even when the devil is, is notably, uh, remarkably involved, um, God still holds the human beings accountable. Yes, he'll call out Satan, but he'll call out uh, human beings as well. So again, in Genesis 3, yes, God puts a curse on Satan, but he also calls Adam and Eve out on the mat to give an account as well. They're not just off the hook, right? As far as God and judgment are concerned. They're responsible. They didn't have to uh, give in to the doubts and the questions and these sorts of things and the rebellion. The devil knocked and they opened. We could fast forward later to another very you know, clear uh, uh, example in Scripture where Satan was involved. We read of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5.3. Peter says this to them, Ananias, or to Ananias in particular, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? I mean, Satan filled your heart. That's why you're doing what you're doing. You say, wow, okay, well then I guess Ananias is just a helpless victim. No, he's not. He doesn't just get off the hook there. He drops dead the holy God judges and keeps the early church pure as this guy was trying to infiltrate it with wicked intent. Not off the hook. Though Satan was involved, man opened the door. And so it is, I think, even here with Judas as well. So Jesus goes on to say, Luke 22, verse 22, the Son of Man goes as, as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Notice, not just woe to Satan, but woe to that man. He's responsible. He's going to give an account for what he did for opening the door. Not just a helpless victim, but a willing accomplice. He enters with permission. So listen, if the devil is going to get the upper hand in your life, it's ultimately going to be because you let him. Because he knocked and he held something out and you said, come on in. I don't know what he's holding out. I don't know the lies he's telling, the webs he's spinning. I don't know how Satan is trying to get at your heart, but I know he's there and I know he's knocking. But I also know you don't 
have to let him in. In Christ, you have the power to resist, to go Jesus in the wilderness on him. It is written, shut the door, deadbolt, right? All right. Second, second way he enters, uh, how he enters, he enters in disguise. He enters with permission, he enters in disguise. Um, and this just kind of naturally follows from that first observation. If we have to let him in, well, then he has to make himself look good, right? He can't just come uh, full fangs and fury and knock on the door and assume that we're going to kind of walk, you know, open the door to him. No, we're going to fight. We're going to call out for help. We're going to resist. We don't want anything to do with that. So, G- so Satan comes with his, in his Sunday best. He comes dressed up all nice. He comes looking good. Um, my kids are at the age where they love cartoons. And one of the things that's just standard among cartoons is, man, the villains are always so obvious, right? You just always know who the bad guys are. So, you know, you got this little village with these people or whatever, and they're all in these radiant colors, and everybody looks great, and these round, nice features and all of this. And then, you know, here comes this guy. His face is like the color of, like, puke. His, his, his eyes are, like, yellow. His teeth are even more yellow. He's got, like, these sharp features. He might as well have, like, horns coming out of his head because you know before he even opens up his mouth, this guy is the villain. This guy is evil. That's how cartoons work. That's not how the devil works. That's not how Satan works. He comes in disguise, and we got to know that. This is what Paul talks about, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Man, he wants to bring you back into the darkness, but he's going to kind of enter the scene as an angel of light. It's a bait and switch. It's a disguise. This is why, even in our text, um, I wonder if you noticed, who are the bad guys? Who are the bad guys in Luke 22, verses 1 through 13? Well, I'll tell you who the bad guys are. The bad guys are the good guys. I wonder if you know what I mean. Verse 2, it's the chief priests and the scribes that are seeking to put him to death. Well, who are they? They're the religious leaders in Israel. Their job is like mine, to study the Bible. That's what they do for a living. They know the law of God in and out. These are the cleanest folks around, and yet their hearts are filthy, wicked, devilish. The bad guys are the good guys. Or Judas, verse 3, who's he? Well, uh, Luke goes out of his way to say that he was of the number of the twelve. What's the twelve? Twelve disciples. Who were they? The closest friends or allies, we may even say, or would have expected, of Jesus. He's the one who, he called them in. Jesus hand-selected. Judas has walked with Jesus for three years intimately. And yet he's the villain here. No one would have thought this guy's going to suit up with Satan. He's on Satan's team. In fact, when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, they have no idea who it was. In our art, you know, we might put like Judas, like, you know, with the puke green face. Like everybody knows that's Judas. 
He's, got, he's cooking up some evil thing. None of the disciples around the table knew. No clue. And then even when Jesus says, listen, okay, here's the guy. It's going to be the one that I give this morsel of bread to. He gives it to Judas. He says, go do what you're going to do. And then the disciples still look around and go, wait, scratching their head. Surely he didn't mean Judas is the one who's going to betray. And they're thinking, no, no, no. He must have just sent him out to go get some groceries for the feast. They don't get it. They didn't suspect it at all. Looks good on the outside. Part of me even wonders uh, how much these Jewish leaders or even Judas himself were aware of just how deep things had gotten in their own hearts. I know for, uh, for sure, at least as far as I read the scriptures, the religious leaders there in Israel thought they were on the right side. They thought God was with them. I mean, Paul even says that, man, I was, you know, according to, to the, the law and all this, I mean, I was perfect, and, and I, was, I was a persecutor of the church. He, at the time, thought that was a good thing to get rid of these Christians. I'm doing God's work while I'm actually doing the devil's work. And so Jesus will look at some of the Jews in John 8, I think it is, and he says, man, you're of your father, the devil. And they're all just offended and, and they draw back uh, amazed that he could ever say such a thing. He's like, we are of, uh, you know, children of Abraham. How could you say that? You see, they're so convinced of their righteousness, even as they're eating from the devil's palm. You have no idea. And with Judas, I, I don't know. I, you know, did he cook this plot up from the very beginning and he had it in his heart? Like, listen, I'm going to you know, go three years with this guy and then I'm going to trade him over for a few pieces of silver? I don't think so. My guess is there was some stuff in there that wasn't right. And over time, little by little, these compromises, these self-justifications, these little sins here or there that you kind of wash aside. Oh, no, look, it's no big deal. Slowly, these little things become big things. And then suddenly, when Satan suggests to you, hey, man, betray. Hey, man, transgress. Hey, man, get rid of this Jesus guy. It sounds like a good idea. You've been in the slow burner. I bet you that's the sort of thing that happened with Judas. You don't even see that you're being cooked. You don't even realize your life, your heart's on fire before it's too late. All of this, I think, is really a warning for us. The devil comes dressed in his Sunday best. Uh, he points to fruit that looks good. And we need to know, man, we can't trust appearances. We need to run everything by God's word. We need to be aware of, uh, you know, of, of the way that we're prone to self-justify, the little compromises that we can make, and those sorts of things that send us little by little down the road of betrayal. Some of us, I mean, even as I'm saying that, you may be thinking about some things right now where you're like, that would be a little compromise. Man, that's mercy if you see that. I just want you to know that's God's love for you. If there are things you're going, oh, that's off in me. God, help me. Because there will come a time, like with Judas or the chief priest or others, where, where you don't see it anymore. You don't see it anymore because you've justified it. You've made sense of it in your own mind. feels fine, and then it's too late. So praise God. Repent. There's fresh mercy flowing in. 
Um, last uh, thing with regard to kind of how he enters. So we've seen that he enters, how he enters, uh, this idea of he enters, you know, with permission, he, he enters in disguise. And now the third thing I wanted to bring out on this was he enters through idolatry. He enters through idolatry. Um, here's essentially what I've been alluding to all along when I've said that the devil's going to hold up some candy or some trinket or some gold-plated you know, treasure. It looks good, shiny on the outside, up to the, the peephole of the door of your heart as he's knocking. There is something on the hook, you see. He doesn't just da- he's a good fisherman. He doesn't just dangle a hook in the water and hope we bite. No, we see the hook, we go swimming away. But we see the treasure. We see the idol. And it, it, it pulls us. It, it draws us. He baits his hook with the stuff of this world. An idol is really something, uh, anything that you're trusting to do for you what only God truly can. Say that again. An idol is, is, is really something, anything you're trusting to do for you what only God truly can. It's when you give your heart away to some lesser thing. Not that you love your spouse or you love your job, but you love those things. And if somebody threatens those things, I mean, watch out. You see what I'm saying? You give your heart to it. That is your life. You find your satisfaction in it, your justification in it. You you find it not in and through God and Christ, but actually kind of by going around and maybe even against uh, God and Christ. Just give me that. I don't care what they say. I don't want to wait on their timing anymore. It's the stuff of this world. Even the good stuff. It becomes too important, so important, we're willing to trade the Savior for it. Because ultimately, functionally, it's our God. We need Him. We've got our God. See, it could be your job. It could be your relationship. It could be uh, your possessions. It could be sex. It could be food. It could be any number of things. In our text, for the chief priests and scribes, it was power and political position. In John eleven forty eight, when they're talking about Jesus and they're starting to kind of, you know, determine, man, we got to kill this guy. They give their reason. They say, listen, because if he keeps stirring up the crowds the way that he does, uh, the Romans are going to come and take away both our place and our nation. John, John eleven forty eight, take away our place and our nation. We can't have that. We love the power and the prestige, the position that we're enjoying here. Jesus threatens that. Kill him. For Judas, as you probably know, it was money. Matthew 26, 15. uh, We are told that it was for 30 pieces of silver that he trades Jesus in, that he betrays Jesus. That was about maybe four months of... um, Wages for a common laborer, which on modern terms, they estimate probably about $7,500. A sizable sum, not a few coins for your pocket. But that's what the Son of Man was worth to him. And I wonder, I wonder if you have a number. I wonder if you have an amount. If the devil were to dangle this amount before your, your eyes, right, you might just let him in. Judas had a number. But no matter whichever way you, you slice it, it's idolatry 
That's how the devil gets in through the stuff of this world that he tempts us kind of to make these more uh, these things more important than the Creator. Uh, this is where Jesus kind of would push back in the wilderness. No, but it's where men and women fall all the time. Um, you know, I was reading an article. You probably heard that that uh, that guy Carl Lentz and the 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 church there, Hillsong, uh, their, their version of Hillsong here in, in New York, and uh, the guy had, had fallen into sin and all of this. It was all over the news, and as I was reading some articles on kind of what happened, um, one of the things that came out was it was talking about just the overall culture and ministry philosophy of Hillsong churches throughout the world, and uh, the kind of the big father of it, of it all, you know, uh, Brian Houston, I think his name is, um, they, they quoted something from him that I, I was uh, shocked to read. Now, it's out of context, but it, you know, so take it for what it's worth. But here's what it said. He was talking about how he has one key rule for any of his leaders who will be preaching and things. Um, and he says, a Hillsong sermon, quote, leaves people feeling better about themselves than they came. Leaves people feeling better about themselves than they came. That sounds like a nice philosophy on the surface until you realize that many times Jesus himself preaches in the scriptures to the opposite effect. Jesus preaches and people get mad or they go away sad, right? Not always feeling better about themselves. The example I'm thinking of right now in particular is with that rich young ruler where Jesus says, listen, sell all you have. Give it to the poor man and then come follow me. And the guy goes away sad. Why? Because money had his heart and Jesus knew it. So the real preacher doesn't always just make you feel warm and fuzzy and send you away feeling better about yourself. Not if there are idols in your heart then the truly Christian preacher will get in your face. You'll feel confronted. You may go away sad. You may get mad because his finger's on something that shouldn't be there, but it's there. Your heart loves it. There are going to be times, man, where, where in this church even, you might not like me. See, here's the thing. My job isn't to make you feel better about yourself. My job is to save your soul. You know what I mean by that. I'm not Jesus, but my job is to get Jesus to you, to get you to Jesus. And see, Jesus and I, we know that these idols are the way the devil gets in. So true love doesn't just pad you and coddle you in your idolatry. It, it puts a finger on it. And that's what Jesus does because he knows idols are inlets to your heart for demons and the devil. It's how he gets in. Third piece uh, under the schemes of man is just why he enters. So we've seen that he enters, how he enters, why he enters. Let me just quickly bring this piece out and we'll start to draw things to a close. Why does Satan enter? Bottom line, he enters to destroy. He enters to destroy. Um, Revelation 9-11, John identifies Satan as the angel of the abyss, and he says this, uh, quote, his name, is in he- his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, which means destruction, and in Greek he is called Apollyon, which means destroyer. Destruction and destroyer, that pretty much sums up 
his end game. That sums up where he's going, what he's doing, why he's coming in. He may promise life. He may promise all of these things, but his goal is to destroy. And we see it right in our text with Judas, right? As we kind of follow along in Luke's gospel, we see how this ends. We know that he ends up hanging himself. He ends up killing himself. Matthew fills it out even further for us. Matthew 27, 3 through 5. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself that's where this is going when you you know run a deal with the devil the stuff you traded God for leaves you empty feels like nothing it turns to ash in your mouth you throw it on the floor I don't want it I don't, it promised life it, it ended up leaving me empty and it ultimately ends up killing you know, there's two other names given to Satan that I found quite intriguing when they're put together. Um, and I think it's possible this is the sort of thing that's going on with Judas here, which is why I bring it out. Uh, Satan is called the tempter in 1 Thessalonians 3.5. And as we've seen, he's, he's called the accuser. Revelation 12, uh, 9 through 10. He's called the accuser and the tempter. And I just thought, man, this is very interesting, the interplay of these two. Think about it. Tempter, accuser. Think about Judas. Tempting you. Here's, what, here's how the devil works. He tempts you to disobey, to rebel, to grab that you know, piece of fruit, to go after that treasure, whatever it is. He tempts you towards it. And then when you've moved towards it, he doesn't celebrate. He turns around and accuses you for it. You can't go home now. You're too filthy. You're too messed up. God has no place for you. Oh, this isn't all that you hoped it would be. There's no turning back. It's over. I'm your daddy now. You see how this works. Tempting, accusing, losing hope, and then ultimately destroying. If I can't go back, if I'm too filthy, it's over. It's over. Some of you may be dealing with this sort of thing even now. He's trying to tempt you. He's trying to accuse you. He's trying ultimately to destroy you. And so the question that we have to end on, is: so what do you do? Where do we go? How do you get out of this? How do you break free? I'll tell you how. Christmas. Christmas. You look back at the text that I read to you at the start of all this in 1 John. Only this time what I want to do is just keep reading uh, in the context there. 1 John 3, 8 and 9. Here's what it says. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one, and here continuing on, born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So you see, Jesus born in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago was ultimately about Jesus being born in you and I here and now. 
Jesus lives the life we should have lived, dies the death we should have died, and when he rises triumphant on the third day, man, he's victorious over Satan, sin, and death. And what he does there is he breaks the trance of the tempter. He overturns the case of the accuser with his blood. It's been paid for. Come home, you're clean. And in that, he destroys the destroyer. (laughs) It's amazing. He's born and dies for me so that I can die and be born again in him. That's what John is saying. He's born in Bethlehem, dies, so I can die and have him born in me now. That's the gospel. He gives me new satisfaction, new power, new freedom, new life. Just rattle off a few more texts from 1 John on this. Later we see 1 John 4.4. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Don't worry about the devil. Take him seriously and don't worry about him. He who's in you now is greater than he who is in the world. And later still, 1 John 5, 4, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And finally, 1 John 5, 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Did you hear that? The evil one does not touch him because Jesus protects So how do you resist? How do you overcome the devil? While there is so much we could say, and I'm only scratching the surface, but just kind of the first essential piece, what we at least need to say is that man, the way you resist and overcome the devil is you flee by faith to the only one who ever did truly resist and overcome the devil and who promises now to do that again in and through you, namely Jesus of Nazareth. It's amazing. I hope you see how different Jesus is than Satan, how much better. Satan, as I've said looks good but he's wicked he promises to give but he only takes he offers abundant life but he kills and destroys but jesus looks like nothing a baby in a manger little town of bethlehem looks like nothing but he's everything you have to Lose it all for his sake. But in him you gain the world. And he dies there on the cross. But that death becomes the source of our life. So much better. So much different. Let's resist the enemy today together. (laughs) Greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. Let's come to Jesus. Let's open our hearts Let's open the door of our hearts, not to the devil, but to our Savior. We need His help. Let's pray.